Well, welcome to you. Welcome to our Lord's Supper service where once a month we get together for remembrance through song and scripture and also symbol. Uh, if you have a Bible, why don't you open it to 1 John. I've been in 1 John recently in my, um, my personal Bible study and been seeing what John says about Christian identity. That Christians are, he says, from God. He says Christians are born of God. He says Christians are children of God. He says they're in Jesus Christ. He says that we abide in God and He abides in us. And he says that Christians know God. That phrase, know Him, is used several times in John. And one of them is 1 John five twenty. 1 John 5.20, look at that verse. He says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and He is eternal life. Now notice those first few phrases of this verse. The Son of God has come, He came, He was born, He lived righteously and He died, and He's given us understanding. I think John means to tell us this is shorthand for the gospel experience, for conversion. Uh, He's putting the gospel and the understanding of the gospel here in just this phrase. He's given us understanding. But all of this, why He has come, and hence why He's died, why He was raised... And why we have understanding is so that we may know him who is true. Not just know that he's true, so that we might know him who is true. This phrase, know him, as I said, is several times in this book of 1 John. Let me show you just a a few more. 1 John 2, verse 3. By this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments. The next verse. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Same chapter, verse 13. He says, I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the father. The next verse, I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Wonderful verses here in 1 John. It reminds me that there are degrees of knowing, aren't there? There are differences between knowing someone and knowing someone. So someone could say to you, you know the president? And you go, you mean Barack Obama? Yeah, I I know of him. I you know, it depends how they're asking the question, how the, the questions frame, the context around it. You know whether they mean, do you really know him or do you know who I'm talking about? If someone said, you know Bono? You would go, yeah, I, I've heard of Bono. I, I know. Yeah, buy things that are red. Sure, I, I know Bono. Uh, someone I met recently was surprised and very impressed that I knew D.A. Carson. Um, you know D.A. Carson? Like, you really know him? And 
Well, yeah, yeah, he, he's been to our house, and well, he was impressed by this. Well, you know, yes, he's, uh, he's one of our foremost New Testament scholars, and, and it's different in the way that, you know, I know Dr. Carson from how I know Barack Obama. I can say, he knows me. But you can think of other ways in which we know people, and it's even, well, it's much closer. I can say, I know Trent Hunter. Trent's my assistant on staff, and boy, his cubicle's right outside my office, and he knows my voice, and I know his, and you know, we're getting to know each other. We're, we're around each other probably more than we're around our wives. We're around each other a lot. I can say, I know Trent Hunter. But even though I'm around Trent a little bit more on an hour-to-hour basis than I'm around my wife, I can say, I know my wife in a very intimate way, right? If I say, I know my wife, I mean, you know that partly means I know her biblically, right? At least four times. I know her. (laughs) That wasn't in my notes, by the way. (laughs) You know, we pretty much, especially in this day with uh, texting, we know where each other is almost at any point in the day. I mean... You know, I know if she's out shopping, she knows if I'm out getting lunch, something like that. We talk frequently. We have our own language and our own inside jokes with one another. We have history. You know, I know her. I know where her moles are. I know where her freckles are, right? I know what her hand feels like. And if another hand tried to slip in and pretend that it was my wife's hand, I would know it's a counterfeit hand, I've handled the real hand. I, I know what it's like. And I don't get sick of her. I, I, I want to be close to her. I can read her. I, I know sometimes what she's thinking before she says it. And I, I know what she's feeling, even if she doesn't want to say it, even if I'm trying to dig it out with a jackhammer. I know something's there. I know her. Different degrees of knowing. We can know someone like we all know the president, but he doesn't know us. But I know my wife at a a totally different level, which makes Matthew 7 frightening. That little passage where Jesus talks about some who will be surprised on judgment day. Remember those fearful words? Jesus will say to some, depart from me, I never knew you. You knew me. You did things in my name. You thought you did things for me. You thought you were committed to me. But I never knew you. What a difference it is between knowing someone and them not knowing you. Let's make sure, if nothing else tonight, that we leave here knowing that he knows us, not simply that we know about him, that we know of him, that we're acquainted with him. Do you know him? Or maybe you know him. Maybe you're forgiven. Maybe you have a new heart. But you've gotten in a a routine of being comfortable with knowing about him. Maybe you've made the Christian life one of knowing more of him not knowing him. But it's all through the New Testament that the whole point of being saved is for communion with him, right? 
We're not just forgiven so that we don't go to hell. In his presence is the fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. So Galatians 4.9 talks about the fact that we have come to know God or rather be known by God. Galatians 4.5 tells us that he redeemed us so that we might receive adoption. What intimate, familial terms. In Colossians 1, it tells us that he reconciled us. Relationship. Relationship was broken. There was enmity. But now in Christ, through faith, there is peace, reconciliation, love. And so we saw just this last Sunday from Colossians Chapter 3, we're to seek those things which are above. And of course, Paul doesn't mean seek the things which are above. He means seek the things which lead to him who is above. In John 17, Jesus prayed for us that we would one day be with him. He wants us to be with him. And he wants us there, he says, to see his glory. He prayed to the Father, the glory that I made known to them. I made known to them your name, and I'll continue to make it known. The love with which you've loved me will be in them, and I will be in them. In 1 Peter 1, Peter says, though we haven't seen him, we love him. And though we don't now see him, we believe in him and we rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and full of glory. Just try to chart that in your mind. Joy, that's a, that's a big word by itself, right? That's not just happy, that's not just contented, it's not just life isn't bad, it, it doesn't suck, something like that. Joy, joy inexpressible, oh that got bigger. Joy I can't describe. Joy I can't put limits on. Joy inexpressible and full of glory. That's what we have. In 1 John 3, look at that since you're open to 1 John. Verse 1, see what kind of love the Father's given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. Verse 2, he exclaims, Behold, we are God's children now. Hmm. In light of all these verses, you see so many verses of the Old Testament just come alive where he's committed to us, he's given affection for us, he's, he's described his love for us and his delight in us in such amazing terms. Isaiah 49 I have engraven you on my palms. Some people get tattoos of the one they love. Engraven you on my palms. God has said, I've carved you into my skin. Jonathan Edwards, probably known in our contemporary culture most for his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, Surprisingly, most frequently used this term for God, his sweetness. When he would describe God, the most frequent term he used wasn't he's wrathful, he's angry, holy, just, sovereign, powerful. 
the most frequently used descriptive term for God in Edwards' writings is sweetness. Karl Barth, the German theologian of the last century, not always great and accurate, known for what's called neo-orthodoxy, a new kind of orthodoxy, but sometimes you find some just wonderful gems in his life and writings, and so let me reference one of those. He was asked by his students once what his deepest thought of God had ever been. What a great seminary kind of question. And what a simple answer. He replied, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. His deepest thought of God. We're to know God and we're to grow in knowing Him. That's the Christian life. Just like in a marriage, a large part of it is growing in knowing the one that you're with. So in the Christian life, we're not just knowing about Him, but we're knowing Him. That's why Jesus died and was raised, to bring us to God. And that's what we'll do for all eternity. So that's the beginning of the Christian life. And it's the end of the Christian life. Everything in between is in a a trajectory of experience, of relationship, of communion, of fellowship. And that growing and knowing Him is both want and work. It's both delight and it's duty, right? We could say it's instinctive and inevitable, and yet it takes work and effort and discipline. So think of those things I mentioned on Sunday, ways in which we seek things which are above. We seek those things in worship. We seek Him in His Word. We seek Him in prayer. We long for His return. We even pray for His return. We seek to live like Him. We want to be like our Father. We want to do our Father's business. We want to imitate Him. And hence, we want to do it in all of life. We want to sanctify the simple as a reflection of the fact that He's good over everything. He's sovereign over the little things. We want to look to promote these things in others because that's what he does. We want to glorify him even in our heartaches and trials. All of this is both instinctive for the Christian, those whose hearts are really his, and then it's also effort and work. And we should take our utmost efforts to work towards this. Not work towards knowing things about Him. Not work toward more religious duties. Not work toward feeling better about ourselves. Or our our spouse or our kids giving us a better grade. I know they don't grade us, but in our minds they do, right? We we have a feeling we're doing about C plus or B minus work from time to time. Right? And we may want to do better. And we may want to do better simply to to get a better grade, to feel more accepted by them, to communicate more love for them. Not bad things, but not ultimate things. 
We want to do these things to His glory. We want to do them as an expression of communion to Him and praise to Him. And we need His help to do that. We need help. So look over at Philippians 3. One more verse. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10. Another know Him verse. In the middle of a sentence here, verse 10, Paul says, That I may know Him in the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings and become like Him in His death. I think what he's saying here is that the power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that's at work in us. And here, if you notice, looking down in your Bibles, he's asking for the power of his resurrection to know something of his power. Resurrection power. It's sitting in the middle of two other things. On the right hand is suffering. I think Paul's saying, He wants the resurrection power of Christ to enable him to suffer like Christ suffered. And then looking down, the left hand, you see to the left of that phrase, power of his resurrection, he wants to know him. Now Paul frequently will pray for power. Paul will frequently talk about strength that's needed, especially in his prayers at the beginning of each of his epistles. So, In Ephesians 1, he says that we're made holy by his power, by his strength, by his doing. In Ephesians 3, he'll say that we're enabled to grasp God's love by his power. He's praying for power that we would know the height and depth and length and breadth of God's love. In other words, it takes extraordinary power for us to experience these things, for us to be holy and for us to understand his love. So look at Philippians 3.10 again, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. I think that means that Paul doesn't just want to see resurrection power. He doesn't want to observe it. He doesn't want to just watch the resurrection happen because he's fascinated with what that would look like. He doesn't want to just see God's power work like, just show me a thunderbolt, the biggest one you got. He doesn't want to just feel this kind of resurrection power. He doesn't want to feel powerful himself. He's asking for the power to know him. You see that? He's asking for power. Resurrection power, the power that it took to raise Jesus from the dead is what he's asking in his experiential communion with Christ himself. And this is from the apostle who's walked with the Lord now 30-some years and walked with the Lord some 30 years, probably better than any of us have since. He's seen things that we haven't seen. He was taken up to the third heaven. It says in 2 Corinthians 12. He saw things he can't even write about. I don't even know what that means. But he can't write about them somehow. He knows things that none of us know. I mean, we're trying to figure out what he said. 
He knew what he wrote. He knew this stuff. He knew what he said. And here as he writes Philippians 3.10, he's nearing the end of his life. I mean, this is one of his last books, one of his last letters. And even here now, it's not enough to just coast on in. He doesn't feel like he now knows him and it's done. He's exclaiming this prayer request that I may know him. That's what I want. If I have resurrection power here at my, at my call, at my request, at my beckoning, I want it to know him and to suffer like him and to, to know his death and what it means more. So A.W. Tozer was famous for saying the soul's paradox is to have found God and still pursue Him. That's it. That's the Christian life. We know Him and we're still praying with Paul, hopefully until our dying day, that I may know Him. But that would be our heartbeat, our one request. Similar to David in Psalm 27. He says, one thing I've asked of the Lord... We were just talking about this in our membership class last week. I mean, he gets one request, one genie request. Right? What are you going to do? What are you going to ask for? One thing I've asked of the Lord, here's what I'm going to seek. Notice he asks for it and seeks for it. And he says that I would behold the beauty of the Lord, that I would inquire in his temple. His one thing is I want to be near him and I want to see him. I want to know him. I want to be close. I want to stay there for a real long time. This sounds far too lofty for us, doesn't it? And here's the good news. Our hope for knowing him is outside of ourselves. It's not within. I mean, I don't know about you, but I compare Paul's earnest desire to have resurrection power enter his communion with God. And I think my prayers are so wimpy, so shallow, and so faithless. I'm so easily contented with other things. And then I remember that his mountain of love His Mount Everest of love is rooted in himself. It's not rooted in me. He doesn't love me because I'm lovely. He doesn't love me because I'm good at reciprocating. He doesn't communicate to me because I'm good at communicating with him. He doesn't tell me how much he loves me because I'm a good listener. It's all sitting in him. It's all for his glory. It's all because he's good. Not because we earned it. Not because we deserve it. His commitment to us is rooted in himself. It's not because we're faithful. Even when we're faithless, he remains faithful. So now we get to the specifics of this hope. 1 Peter 3.18 says, Christ suffered for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, 
to bring us to God. There's the goal, to bring us to God. How does it happen? Christ suffered. He suffered because he was bad? No, no, no. He was the righteous one. He suffered in the place of the unrighteous ones. Substitution, we call it. We have sin. We're the unrighteous. He didn't have sin. He was righteous. We deserve to suffer, even die, and die eternally. And he suffered and died in our place to bring us to God. Now think of who did that for us. The Son of God did that. God in the flesh did that. The one from whom are all things and through whom are all things and to whom are all things. He's the one that suffered to bring us to God. And think of who he brings us to. To God. Think of the privilege of that. What right have we to come to God? What right have we to step before him? What what right have we to be adopted, to be accepted, to be reconciled, to be loved? Well, none in ourselves. But in Christ, we have every right through faith. What privilege. What privilege. G.I. Packer's book called Knowing God has a few chapters at the beginning on this whole concept of knowing him and being known by him. And Packer gives the illustration of, can you imagine knowing Churchill? Like knowing him, not knowing of him, but knowing him. You know Winston Churchill. And imagine knowing, imagine knowing Churchill in the midst of World War II. You know him when he's at the top of his game, when he's the guy. And you know him in World War II. And he talks to you. And you're in on his plans. You're in on what they're doing. Amazing, right? In John 14, Jesus told the disciples, You know what I'm doing because you're my friends. You know what's coming. I've told you. I haven't kept it from you. Because you're my friends. What privilege to know him. A million times greater than Churchill's best friend and confidant in the midst of World War II. 